So, how are you? No, really. Hello and a warm welcome to the Men on Mental Health podcast. My name is Jamie Morgan and through this podcast I speak to men from varying backgrounds about their experiences with mental health. The times when they were low, how that affected them, how they got through it, where they are today and how those experiences have shaped them, and discuss the importance of talking. According to recent statistics, around 1 in 8 men has a common mental health problem, such as anxiety, depression, a panic disorder or OCD. Men are less likely to access psychological therapies to combat this, with only 36% of referrals to NHS talking therapies being men. We also know that nearly three quarters of adults who go missing are men. 87% of rough sleepers are men, and men are three times as likely as women to become dependent on alcohol and three times as likely to report frequent drug use. Men report having lower levels of life satisfaction than women, and three times as many men as women die by suicide, with suicide being the single biggest killer of men under 45. On average, 12 men in Britain take their lives every single day. This podcast hopes to encourage more men to talk, to start opening up about their mental health, have these types of conversations with friends and family, generate better understanding and awareness around the subject, as well as empowering men to speak and seek help when they need it. In this episode, I speak to Jack. Now, Jack works in education as a teacher, but he also has a really interesting personal story to tell. I know that you're going to enjoy this episode, and please, please listen right to the very end to hear how that story comes to conclusion. You won't regret it, I promise. So here we go. Episode two of Men on Mental Health with Jack. Hey, Jack. Hi, Jamie. How are you? I'm excellent, buddy. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Uh, really, really appreciate you taking the time. Um, your story is one I heard through uh, a friend, actually. And um, when I heard it, I thought, oh, I really have to get you on here. Um, people are going to find this really, really interesting. Um, but before we dive into that, um, you are a teacher. I am indeed, I am indeed. <laughs> and you work in secondary schools, right? So what, what kind of years are we looking at here? Uh, so we're looking at years 7 to 13, so they're kind of 11 to 18 years old. So they can be a bit mischievous, but, you know, they've really developed personalities and that's why I enjoy it. And do you teach one particular subject or are you split across many? Um, primarily, I'm a PE teacher, although at the school that I'm currently working at, I've taught a bit of science and a bit of maths as well. Um, and I've got a few other roles with working with some of our most able kids across all subjects. So, uh, big question really, uh, how has the last year and a half been for you? Uh, pretty tough. I think whilst it's been manageable, and I think as a PE teacher, we're luckier perhaps that we haven't had the marking load um, to generate grades, and especially with the kind of current year 11, 13s, trying to get them the grades that not necessarily they need to get to the next stage, but the grades that they deserve um, has been pretty difficult. We've had to generate centre assessed grades or CAGs, um, it's been pretty taxing, especially for your kind of real core EBAC subjects, your English, your maths, your sciences, your languages. Um, their mark load has been ridiculous. So I, I don't envy them at all. They've worked incredibly hard. Um, throughout the kind of lockdowns, obviously being a PE teacher, there's only so much we can do. But a lot of it is about being, once we've been in school, once we've come back, making sure that pupils just really are thinking about their mental, physical well-being, being active, enjoying sport. Um and yeah, it's, it's, it's been a challenge I didn't think I'd have in my teaching career, uh, let alone kind of with, within the first kind of three, four years of it. Uh, but it's definitely one, I think, as a school and as a group of PE teachers, we come through really strong. And we're hopefully now in a position where actually a lot of our practices, say even remote learning, that we can utilise and get pupils using kind of technology better to learn. Actually, we maybe even have kind of benefited from. 
I think with the school that I'm at, we've actually also just moved into a brand new kind of building on the Fulham Broadway, which is amazing. Um, the facility is incredible. We've got a new gym. We've got a new sports hall, two kind of sports facilities that we didn't have in the old site. So for the boys to come in and really see that. Um, so we teach, I teach at a boys school just so, to make sure that uh, we understand. And yeah, it's just they're really making the most of it from the lessons that we're able to teach, the quality of lessons we're able to teach, the sport we provide in sports afternoons, the co-curriculum. We have four core sports, but outside of that, we've been offering and being able to offer so much more in terms of things like kind of mixed martial arts, boxing, basketball, um, and people really help come in and deliver what is a pretty extensive co-curriculum. My colleague Josh has been absolutely smashing it in that respect. There's so much going on. We've had pupils go kayaking. We've had athletics. We've had uh, BMXing and cycling at the Stratford Olympic Park. Um, we do do so much. And yeah, ho hopefully the uh, boys are really benefiting from that kind of varied co-curriculum as well as kind of getting that catering of uh, core sports in their PE. Wow, all of that sounds uh, fantastic. I've no <laughs> desire to go back to school, but uh, I wish uh, I wish mine had been a little bit more like that. Um, that sounds really exciting for you, for you and the school. Um, we'll definitely come back onto the education side of things uh, a bit later. But before we do, let's dive into uh, a bit more of your uh, your personal story, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so one of the many interesting things about you is that uh, you are donor conceived. Indeed, indeed. And just for those who may have not heard that term before or aren't fully aware of what that means, could you just explain that in a bit more detail? So um, it's something that I grew up always knowing. Um, I think that in itself is actually quite unique. And I can kind of explain a little bit more about that because I think from hearing stories of other people who are donor conceived and becoming more kind of involved in that world, a lot of people actually aren't told when they're young and that can actually create a lot of problems when they get older, whether it's uh, their mother has used a sperm donor or whether they were born through kind of surrogacy and they're kind of, they were used by eggs donation or actually in some cases both. Um, so it is quite unique. Um, yeah, I, I always knew my mum was single at the time. Um, she was 37, thought, you know, I need or would really like to have a child. And if it's not now, it's never. Um, went through kind of formal kind of sperm donation selection processes and kind of nine months later, there I was. Um, it's a weird one in terms of the legislation. So I believe the laws changed in August 91, where after that point, all sperm donors were anonymous. Um, you had no choice. They were always going to be anonymous. And before August 91, it was a little bit more lax in terms of the regulation. So that doesn't therefore mean that I've got 250 siblings born pre nine, nine, August 91. Um but there was a little bit more kind of rigor in terms of how it was managed. Um, so I was able to find out when I got curious about 23, 24 years old, some of the non-identifiable information about my biological father, his uh, eye color, hair color, what he did at the time, where, what he was studying, his interest, height, uh, weight, stuff like that. So fairly kind of vague descriptions and you could be walking down the road and match that description and think that could be him. I didn't do that. I'm, I'm glad I didn't do that to myself, but um I, I've heard of stories where people do do that. And I think there's a real kind of sense of lack of identity without knowing where they come from. And I completely understand that. Um, I was very lucky with my mum, my godmother, my grandparents, my uncle, my auntie, my cousins, that I had such a loving, supportive family network that I never missed that father figure. I never necessarily needed anything additional, but I do empathize with those and feel for those that do feel they needed more. And that can, again, 
if there is a sense of lack of identity or maybe they're not allowed to find out certain information that yeah it can cause them some kind of stress and anxiety when they get older mm, i can imagine thank you for sharing that jack um could you explain a little bit more about the uh, change in regulations and um and the the impact of that on um knowing details about about the donor because i know that um that your your journey sort of into discovering your father sort of ties into that post 2000 the laws changed again where anyone born through donor conception after 2000 the donors were told that they would be anonymous up to the day that the child turned 18 then they were allowed legally to find out who they are whereas i was kind of in that weird kind of nine and a half years or so in between eight years where that wasn't the case um so i actually i lost my mum when i was nine to cancer so Whilst my godmother became my legal guardian, and for all intents and purposes, she's also my mum, she'll be the grandmother to my children one day. Um, there was a sense of not I'm an orphan, but you know, there, there was slightly more longing. And I think it got to 24, 23, 24, when I really started to think, you know, I could actually invest a little bit more and try to find out who he was. I always maintained I didn't ever want to meet him. It was just simply to see a photo. And kind of weirdly now, when I get onto who he is a little bit more, I always wanted to see a photo because I didn't think I could look anything like him, given how much I look like my mum, my uncle, my cousins and my grandfather. But long story short, later down the line, we now know who he is and we've kind of I've seen him and I've met him and I'm a spitting image of him. So um, it's quite uh, it's an in- it's interesting. It's unique. Um, but yeah, I think it was just the kind of curiosity and yeah, I, I, it was almost like a penny drop moment one day when I thought, you know what, let's just have a look into this a little bit more because I never needed to, I never had done. And yeah, the curiosity, I think, got the better of me. Yeah, I mean, I think that's completely natural, isn't it, to want to know where you come from and and who you come from. Um, Do you remember having any sort of conversations with with your mum at an early age about, you know, about that father figure and and the, the absence of that father figure? It was something I was always educated on and kind of explained very clearly to about this was the process um, my mum was five foot one and my grandma on her side was 4'11". So she always just said she, want, made, she wanted to make sure she uh, had someone taller. <laughs> and I can tell from, uh, from looking at you on, on screen that uh, you must get your height from, uh, from your dad's side. Um, so you grew up with your uh, godmother. How was that? So my godmother, my mum and I lived together anyway. Um, so they were both, they were both um, special care babies unit nurses at the Royal Free in Hampstead. Um, and they kind of met and were really close friends and decided they wanted to open a day nursery together. So the nursery was called Rough and Tumble. We lived in an area in North London called Crouch End. And they bought this kind of large Victorian house and they converted the ground floor into a day nursery. So I used to come home to 30 to 35 children between the ages of two and five in the ground floor of my house. Over the 13 years that the nursery was open, so kind of three years prior to me being born in 92, and then kind of up to 20 or actually 16 years, we sold it in or uh, December 2005 or so. So the nursery was open for about 15 years, 13 of which I was alive. Um, yeah, I, I, I saw plenty of kind of children come through the nursery my age and then younger than me. Um, I then went on to be a kind of TA at my secondary school when I was 20, 21 years old. And there were children in years eight, nine, 10 who were at the nursery that my mum and my godmother owned. So there's kind of within the area in North London in Crouch End that I've grown up, we've, or I've been, and the nursery was a huge part of the community at that time, whether it was kids going to my secondary school, then going on to, or even primary school before that, 
um, yeah, I, I, I've always been around a lot of people. It's curious, isn't it? Do you think um, sort of growing up with the nursery and, and all those other kids and, and having that system uh, so close to your home, do you think that's perhaps one of the reasons that you went into education? I, I would say so. I remember being on my first day of teacher training and we were sat in a circle, all kind of fairly fresh faced, quite new, very new to it. And they asked, I want you to speak to the person next to you and then we'll feedback as a group. Why are you wanting to become a teacher? And that was the answer I gave that I kind of my parents, my mum, my godmother owned a day nursery. And that was probably such a huge influence on me in terms of the impact that adults can have on children. Um, and I think other than my love of sport, like undying love of sport, yeah, that combined, I think, leads to being a PE teacher. Oh, fantastic. I mean, it was obviously meant to be. Just linking the education side of things to your upbringing again, you decided, you told me that you decided to have a, a conversation with your students about donor conception. So can you tell me a little bit about um, how that came about and why you decided to do that and, and what that experience was like? A lot of it was more kind of geared towards mental health and I did touch upon it. Um, my colleague and one of my best mates at work, Josh, we actually started working at the school at the, at the exact same time. We even interviewed on the same day um and they hired us both along with another teacher actually says so three of us in the p department we all started at the same time all interviewed on the same day and they employed all three of us so we're very close and my colleague josh has taken on a role within the school was kind of part within along with another teacher heading up our pshce curriculum so looking at kind of citizenship and within that you get obviously things like kind of drugs, alcohol, uh, relationships, education, but one of the real foci of Josh this year has been kind of mental health and well-being. One with everything going on with the kind of pandemic and time in and out of school. And actually for some pupils, school is the best place for them because not all pupils do have kind of the most loving supportive households. And it's really making sure that they, when they are back are really, really well looked after. And during Mental Health Awareness Week, uh, Josh interviewed myself and our head of department, Dan, as well, about our very different but equally kind of not stories or battles, I'd say. I think battles is the wrong word, but kind of stories with mental health and the kind of ups and downs and what's led to us seeking support at times in our lives when we most needed it. And I think a lot of mine came from that, not lack of identity, but a sense of when I've had relationships end and I think it comes down to a lot to losing my mum when I was young and with not necessarily knowing who my father was up to a point in my life when relationships ended I really felt a sense of quite a lot of loss I didn't know not who I was but what I was able to then start giving again I think I always gave a lot in relationships and often didn't prioritize myself and I think as I got older, I started to identify a pattern of behaviour and it led me to seeking more kind of professional, impartial help that I hadn't had before. Um, and yeah, and I think speaking to my colleague Josh about it, he and I have spoke at length about our lives as we got to know each other and become very close friends. But you speak to him about it in an interview style similar to this, for that then to be broadcast to the entire school. I didn't actually realise what I was doing or what I was not getting myself into, but until... The morning of the Tuesday when all pupils had PSHE with their form tutors and I actually watched it back with my year 11 class who have now finished school for the year. That was the point it hit me and I felt not in a bad way, but I felt very exposed. Um, it is quite a lot to lay down and put in front of people who don't know you in an intimate way. And I was walking through the corridors after that and I just felt eyes on me. 
And even if only one pupil out of that felt empowered enough to go and share their kind of mental health struggles or something they needed to talk about, you know, it, it served its purpose. And I think for Dan, my, he my head of department, as the head of kind of PE within a school, especially like a boys' school, he holds quite a lot of weight in terms of quite a kind of senior position where he should be approachable. And I think as a PE department, we are, I think as a school, we do so much to empower our pupils with, it's okay to not be okay. There's no such thing as boys don't cry. It's such a historical cliche. Um, but no, it was, it was a really interesting conversation and I'm really glad we did it. It's so encouraging to hear that those sort of conversations are being had in schools because I, I really don't think that they were being had when I was when I was in school you know I'm fairly certain that, that they weren't um, so it's really great to hear that those um, those sort of lessons and, and talks are being being had and uh, good for you for, for, for doing that um, you know is that support there kind of regularly now for, for, for students in your school I always feel I've got a kind of moral obligation to some extent whether I've taught the people or not and you do have to kind of weigh it up and balance it because sometimes if a pupil has suffered from family bereavement they don't want every single teacher to know or coming up to them saying um, look I'm here to talk if you want but I think there is a much more tangible I've been where you I've, I've sat where you're sat and whilst I don't teach you, um, I very much know the emotions and feelings that you're currently going through. And should you want to talk to anyone and not even necessarily have them talk back, but simply listen, um, please know that I will hear you. And I think for a few people who have suffered from bereavement and especially in the last year, um, I can't imagine anything harder. You're not only confined to your own house and even in lockdown one, when it was a lot stricter nationally comparatively to say kind of November and then the most recent one this year, only being allowed outside for an hour at a time, not necessarily even being able to go to the funeral. I lost my grandfather in April last year and he was in South Africa and we haven't been able to fly out there even yet. So whilst I'm kind of 27, 28, for someone who loses, let's say even a parent's even more closely related to them, and can't either necessarily see them, let's say they don't live with them, their parents are separated, or the funeral that was had was with five people, to not be able to have that support there, I can't imagine what they were going through. And to be able to then hopefully give pupils at school a different avenue that they can go down should they need support or someone to talk to. Yeah, I think that's very powerful. And when So the school that I went to for my A-levels, I was very lucky to get this school. It's an amazing school in Bedford. and. I remember sitting there on the open day and the then uh, headmaster, although he's now moved on to another school, um, said, I think typically schools and specifically kind of private schools, where I was really fortunate to get an opportunity to go to for my A-levels, create robots. They create some pro a product of the system that kind of goes into the working world and will exist for 45 years working and then retire and kind of that's their life. But I, it really resonated and stuck with me that they want to be able to develop young people into people that can have a conversation about anything anywhere any with anyone anytime and I think whilst at that point his that kind of mantra was geared towards kind of academics and kind of school level achievement I think that very much yeah transcends the classroom and being able to have a conversation about your mental health with anyone where you feel safe to do so in an environment where you feel that someone's going to listen and hear you again I think that's a really important soft skill to have and with everything that young people do now have to go through even since kind of I finished school and even then kind of maybe 20 30 years later young people now have such high expectations placed upon them to go into the world and succeed because 
there is an option to not you know you have to succeed and whilst that comes with a lot of it's quite a gray statement and it's about finding something for everyone that emotional intelligence is a real soft skill that you can apply both personally but professionally and i think if yeah if you can have the teachers to support them but the curriculum like you said in place to do so then it will make such a difference that's so good to hear jack and um fantastic work by by you and your colleagues um it's so so important that, that students have that support and like you said you know not every child has um the best system at home so it's really important to have that safe safe space at, uh, at school um, so well done for you for providing that. I have an article here that I'd love to get your opinion on from a an article posted by the Office of National Statistics in 2019 based on research from 2017. It says that one in 18 preschool aged children, which is aged two to four, experience some difficulties with their mental health. With boys, it's slightly higher, which is one in 15 and girls, it's one in 24. Then when you get to primary school age, it's uh, five to 10 year olds. One in 10 has a common mental health problem. And then when we reach secondary school, it's uh, for 11 to 16 year olds, of course, and um, that's one in seven show signs of mental health, uh, mental health disorder. And then when we get to 17 to 19, it's, uh, it's said that one in six has a common mental health problem. And also this is really interesting that um, from the moment um, a mental health disorder is established to the point where that person receives help there is a 10-year delay uh, which is which is unbelievable the 10-year delay from the moment where that that mental health disorder is established to the point where that person has either realized or has been educated on and has actually gone and you know gone to get help is a 10-year delay with social media also playing a massive part of, of those statistics um, and an identifiable link between social media use and, and poor mental health, which is of something, of course, that was very um, in the early stages of development when, when, when I was at school, uh, but it's something that is so prevalent now. I'd just love to get your thoughts on, on some of those statistics. And also, is that surprising to you? Unfortunately, no. I think putting it into context of a teacher if you teach in a kind of state school where class sizes are kind of between maybe 27 to 33 34 if it's one in six you're going to be having the best part of kind of five or even six pupils in that class who may be suffering from mental health so not only does that perhaps inform the way in which you from a teaching perspective feedback imagine if a pupil who has an undiagnosed mental health condition receives a piece of feedback simply from a, a small test, but there's such a disproportionate reaction to the grade that they get, let's say they don't get the grade they're expecting, there are some underlying reasons why that might be the case. And I think the same way pupils have kind of education and healthcare plans, should they have a diagnosed maybe physical or kind of learning cognitive disorder, um, it should be viewed in the same way because I think those people do need to be catered for and teachers should know that information if it is available. Unfortunately, I don't think it is available. Like you said, I think the statistics are there, but the extent to which it and how it's diagnosed is quite a difficult avenue to navigate. Um, yeah, the social media, the types of language you hear from pupils, not necessarily explicit or kind of sexualized language, especially at kind of such a young age. But the language is very geared towards kind of gaming, towards social media, their trends and fads in like dance moves and stuff do all stem from things like kind of TikTok and kind of the types of games they're playing on their consoles. 
does it surprise me? No. Is it a shame that it surprises? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think it is something that we similarly address within our PSHE curriculum and just make them aware that it is also known. I think for pupils to know that adults talk about it, I think is just the first step. If it was completely unrecognised, they would just kind of carry on doing what they're doing without sense of consequence or fear of what they're doing and how it can help, uh, hurt them in the long run. Um, yeah, no, unfortunately, it isn't a surprise, but it is a shame. And that's really interesting to hear it from 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 your perspective. Um, in the instance, then, for example, that uh, a student was identified by by a teacher for the possibility of there being some kind of mental health issue there, um, what systems are in place? Um, you know, I suppose you you guys have a, a, a moral obligation to to take that somewhere. Um, in the instance of your school, what what um, what would be the the appropriate um, course of action? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, within every school, they have a DSL, so a designated safeguard lead. Um, my school are really fortunate in that our pastoral system is one of our real selling points. We have four incredible heads of house. There's our DSL, there's a deputy def- de- uh, designated safeguard lead. We've got an amazing kind of senior leadership team who similarly really support our pastoral system. Um, and then within that, form tutors our maximum class size at my school is 24 despite being a non-fee paying kind of state school free school which is really unique um so there's a lot of or reduced ratios of pupils to teachers so the kind of we really do know our pupils and whilst there may be pupils who in different subjects may be kind of not under the radar but kind of less well known at some point in the day there'll be a teacher that they come across who really gets them really knows them and we do have um, systems in place to raise kind of safe safeguarding or well-being concerns and it's simple things in the in the first instances of kind of you look for things or if you happen to observe things like kind of excessive tiredness that often generally suggests that kind of their screen time or once they go to bed what is that environment like do they have quick games consoles tvs in their rooms Um, Are they spending all the time on their phones? I think obviously it's completely up to the parents, but I think schools do, yeah, have an obligation to suggest these are kind of detrimental behaviours to them, but also these are really facilitative habits that are going to help them in the long run. And obviously things like lack of attendance uh, is a huge indicator as well to kind of poor mental health um, and something that we pick up on and try and kind of support and improve as as we go, especially as a form tutor with year 11 this year, the stresses they went through knowing that they were coming to school to maintain their level, to get a grade for an exam that they were never going to sit um, is a tough position to be in. Um, so yeah, so there was a lot to do there. And I guess for a lot of students, you know, some of them will have, have waited, you know, to the last minute to cram in all that um, revision and, um, and yeah. perhaps that's the best way that they, they learn or that they work or you know perhaps they you know they they have just left at the last minute but there are a lot of students i guess that would have done that that um are perhaps now not got the grades that they would have got or deserved yeah um, which is a shame absolutely and i think for all the best intentions we uh, we and i'm sure all heads and all schools all over the country said in september last year the year 11s didn't sit their exams you have to start working hard now because if it happens again, please don't put yourself in a position where you have to say, but I was waiting to pull it out of the bag the last minute. Yeah. It's so easy to say, and whilst not a threat, it's a realisation. And some of our boys really did then kind of put the handbrake down and they worked so hard 
you do obviously get a variation in kind of work ethics and kind of levels of motivation and trying to get those boys up to the necessary motivation levels to try as hard as they could for an exam that they weren't going to sit is yeah it's an interesting thing to get them to do but those that get the grades that they need they deserved and unfortunately we're also in a position where you can't predict a higher grade for a pupil if they don't deserve it because then you're conditioning them to put to lead the life that they will get something out of not doing a lot sure sure um and they and unfortunately whilst we're we're not god we we are we do have to teach them those lessons if you don't work hard you won't get what necessarily you want and actually that is also a difficult balance i'm sure all teachers morally and kind of personally have battled over the last term or so creating these cags yeah absolutely I wonder what kind of um, extra support there has been for um, your students in the last sort of year and a bit, year and a half, um, that they wouldn't have necessarily had before. What what kind of systems have been put in place to help them cope with with the pandemic? Um, so we're lucky in that um, we actually receive funding within the school to have a counsellor on on site all the time. Amazing, so amazing. You know, some of some of our higher priority boys in terms of their kind of mental health struggles have that support in school. I've mentioned our pastoral and kind of head of house system is really strong. Um, Since uh, we came back from the most recent lockdown, we've had lunchtime kind of safe space rooms where someone can, each year group are able to go and speak to individuals and know that there's going to be a teacher there that they can talk to. Um, We're also lucky that within the school, we are a a Google school. So all pupils have Chromebooks. So all of our lessons in terms of access were much better so we had constant contact we had virtual form times in the morning even though they weren't form times as you would have them in school it was just a 15 minutes to catch up with your form tutor one register for the day but also just kind of check in how's everything going how was your evening what did you get up to anyone go for a run last night um just that kind of real intimate kind of one not one-to-one but that pastoral support that form tutors love being a form tutor for. And I think, yeah, we're lucky that all pupils in our school have a Chromebook, they have the device, and it gave us that extra access to them to make sure that they were, or hopefully support if they weren't, okay. That's so good to hear. Um, but certainly you're um, you're setting a really good example. I wonder that when students do reach out, um, or likewise, if, if you as a teacher notice any recurring themes of of regular issues what what are things that um that come up most for um for your students in terms of mental health i think in terms of what i can come on and comment on is kind of within my form i did a exercise with them probably about two months ago so kind of we've come back from lockdown one we're just back and they've now been told or they are aware they don't have exams, but this is how the next two months is gonna look. We're gonna tell you now, it's gonna be hard. Um, We're gonna be doing assessments quite frequently just to kind of get a real strong picture of where you could be and what you, the grades that you deserve, hopefully. But I got them to just get their whiteboards out. Every kid has a a small kind of A4 size whiteboard and a pen. I said, I just want you to write down three things that you think or feel about what you've just been told. You've just had an assembly of what the next two months is gonna be like. How do you feel? How, what do you think about it? And a lot of the words coming out were kind of anxious, worried, um, uncertain, a lot of the, and a bit of confusion as well. I think trying to really get them to understand the context of why they were doing assessments quite frequently, totally getting the grades they deserve. And I think they had this kind of really romanticized year 11 idea of we go on exam lead, the weather's going to be amazing. It hasn't only in the last week because it really perked up. 
and that they were going to go on exam leave and become young men where they were independent they were responsible for their own study they only came into school for their exams they got to then see their friends kind of once the exam period finished and have this three month long summer and it's kind of this 16 year old dream and it's just been anything but they've been in school they've been told where they need to be they've been told what they're studying they've been told what exams they need to do better on even within learning bubbles um they've had to spend like each each day one year groups learning or play space at breaking lunches the sports hall but just because we're trying to minimize obviously kind of transmission risk of covid19 so even not only are they not allowed to become these independent young men who are responsible for their education but unfortunately we were in an environment where they've been told on this day you have to be here so they've had such a lack of kind of independence freedom autonomy that i do feel for them and it is unfortunately just a kind of consequence of what we're living through at the moment and I do hugely empathize with them and it just kind of epitomizes those words that they were saying the confusion the anxiety the worry of what they're going to be having to do and now they're done I think they will still look on it with I got through that I or I hope at least they will those that maybe didn't quite get the levels they need or had the level of success that they were hoping for, I hope that kind of really is the catalyst to them going on to whether they're doing A-levels, whether they're staying on our school, whether they're moving to really kind of get their acting gear and actually go on and really make something of themselves. And I think oh, my head teacher actually said it to the year 11s when they left last Friday. You are the generation that could go forward and say, I've developed resilience because of this. And no other generation can. And I think that's going to be similar to all those soft skills you learn, all those hard skills you get with your grade certificates. They've got a real selling point to who they are, what they can achieve and what they came through to get where they need to be. Honestly, Jack, I can't really tell you how good it is to hear you um, to hear you talk like that. And, and you know, even things like the, the whiteboard system of, of just, you know, write down three words that, that you're feeling right now. Um, I don't think I know adults that would would um, be able to do that, or or would. Um, I just think it's a really good thing to to develop that kind of emotional awareness and and to feel okay with sharing it. Um, so yeah, good for you. And I, I, it really does sound like you've um, you've got a really good system in place. And um, yeah, I, I really it's really lovely to hear to hear you talk like that. And also also so passionately about what you do as well um i think that that really comes through um just to bring it back now to uh, a bit more about uh, about you and your own story i know that you're happy for me to share this that um you reached a point where you thought it would be a good idea to uh, speak to a gp uh, in relation to your own mental health um and you know this is the idea of the podcast it's it's to sort of share these stories um so could you tell me a little bit more about um, the decision to do that and, and the that process? It, I got to a stage where, and it wasn't even at the time necessarily a long-term relationship, but it was one that I became quite emotionally invested in quite quickly. Um, that relationship ended and I felt quite low, quite hollow, um, and I couldn't really understand why. And I think it was that I generally am a person that likes to kind of understand what I'm doing, have real clarity, um, and I'm quite meticulous in what I do. And to lose that sense of control over the way I'm feeling was quite difficult. And it led to me calling my godmother probably three, four times a week. And sometimes with my godmother, love her to pieces, 
but we may not have contact for maybe a week or two. We are both independent adults and no news is good news. But she knew that when I was calling kind of three, four, five times a week that I wasn't necessarily myself and that I was struggling with something. And I would find myself maybe two, three times a week kind of crying down the phone to her through no real reason other than I don't know why I'm crying, but I needed to cry and I wanted to call you. Um, so basically I went through uh, the local kind of borough mental health services and it was actually fairly efficient at the time. And I think whilst I believe and I'm aware that mental health support services now are particularly strained with everything that's gone on, um, I think I was lucky in that it kind of hit me and I made that, had that penny drop moment pre kind of pandemic. Um, I had an initial assessment and then I went through to meet my counsellor for the first time and they were so lovely in that should the fit of the counsellor not be for me they were very clear that I could choose to uh, go through someone else and I had um, a woman who as my counsellor started to get to know me and I think initially the process was just kind of getting to understand who I am what my story was and I think it, similarly in the first two or three weeks I probably cried, cried quite a bit I think when you open yourself up to someone new about some of the most intimate details of your life it is quite an exposing thing and whilst Obviously, with the council, I went into more detail than I did in the interview at school, um, but kind of touched upon some of the similar themes. It was quite exposing. And the, obviously, the process and practice within kind of counselling is they can open you up, but it's also about closing you back up before you leave. And you come back the next week and you kind of maybe take a step back, but then take two or three forward again. And over the course of the year that I was having counselling, and I do truly believe everything happens for a reason, within the year of starting counselling, I have a half brother who contacts me donor conceived which is how we then got into finding out who our biological father was uh in the spring we then have the pandemic my grandfather then passes away in the april and then we have this similar kind of toing and froing of kind of lockdowns non-lockdowns and my counselor was in such a strong position to support me through that i got to the point where actually living with two amazing housemates who then decided that they were going to go back and live at home, home during the first lockdown because they could, they were working from home, not saving rent because they still had to pay rent, but um, they wanted to get out of London, which I fully understand. So I was now living by myself and I lived by myself for five months and I'd always maintained, I couldn't live by myself. I don't want to do it. I like being around people. I like the interaction. I think the very hustle and bustle environment that I grew up in as a young boy, I, I, I enjoyed. Um, but actually in those five months I thrived, not only was the weather incredible um, during lockdown one, which I think we're all very thankful for, uh, given how poor the weather was during this third lockdown. Um, I, yeah, I thrived. I kind of really took, whilst I'm a PE teacher and I play a lot of sport, and I take my kind of conditioning and diet and kind of physical well-being well. I really had an opportunity to kind of put my foot down on how I wanted it to be. I had a lot more choice. And I really just looked after myself. And those five months, I think, really taught me a lot and was almost the acid test of how far I'd come through my counselling process. My counsellor gave me the coping mechanisms that I didn't have before. It was the not trying to always control the uncontrollables. It was allowing myself to feel vulnerable and to feel and almost like rumble with it. I read a book in the January of 2019 by an author called Brene Brown called Dare to Lead. And one of her key kind of methods and key kind of mantras of that is rumble with vulnerability. And whilst I read that from a teaching and professional and kind of leadership lens, that was the first time I got to really think about that from a personal perspective and allowing yourself to 
feel the sadness at times and feel the vulnerability allows you to process it better i always tried to avoid and remove myself from whatever environment or situation was making me feel that way very quickly because that was how i coped with losing my mum i remember the morning after my mum passed i went and played football because that's what i did on a saturday morning my two best mates from primary school and their parents were outside my house to hug me to console me but i treated it as business as usual and whilst at the time there was nothing to suggest I wasn't a confident, happy, outgoing young man, deep down, I think there were more issues that didn't I didn't identify or no one identified until I did it and probably, yeah, three, four years ago, you know. Um, so then when relationships ended, and that's the point at which I decided to go into counselling, I needed to stop avoiding and removing myself from the environment within it, which made me feel vulnerable because I did, it would just happen again and it happened again and it happened again. And I've now hopefully, yeah, got those coping mechanisms to deal with, not just personal, but professional setbacks. And um, yeah, I'll forever be thankful to my counsellor. She was amazing. You're losing my mum, losing my grandpa. I, even, I, said, I haven't said it yet, but I lost my mum's mum to my grandma when I was seven. I think I've always just said I will always be fine. So I think I sometimes, whether it was in relationships or I just allowed myself to take risks where I need not and because I would always be fine but actually that kind of I will always be fine led me to feeling rubbish for a period of time maybe I'd get there in the end but it actually taught me to really prioritize myself a little bit more and whilst that's not selfish I think it's making smarter more kind of mentally sustainable decisions and professionally and personally yeah I, I'm in such a much better position and yeah, the, the first lockdown was just the perfect kind of test for that. And I came through it with flying colours as far as I'm concerned. So, um, yeah. Oh, thank you so much for, for sharing that, Jack, and for, for putting it so um, articulately. Um, I'm curious, what would you say to somebody that um, perhaps was in a similar position to where you were? Um, it seems like you have got a really clear perspective um, looking back at, at that point in your life, what would you say to somebody that is perhaps in a position where they feel uh, that you know they could and perhaps should speak to somebody, or that um, they feel a bit stuck? They don't really know how to voice how they're feeling. They feel a bit trapped. They they can't talk to a partner. They they have you know maybe a bit of a jumble in their head, and they and they can't quite make sense of it. They're feeling low. You know whatever it might be. Um, now looking back at, at that period in your life, uh, what, what would you say to somebody in that position? It would be nice to know and believe and think that everyone does have an outlet. And I know not everyone does. I think even to just pick up the phone to a kind of mental health support charity, whether that's Mind, whether that's Samaritans, just even feeling the confidence to speak to someone you don't know about some of the most intimate things about your life. And with the confidence, that obviously, that is... Uh, confidential information it is sacred to you it's kind of privileged I think with mental health charities it's less about the support but I think it's more about the breadth of access because just by starting that ball rolling that someone can know that they can talk to someone I think is huge I think it's hard to say to someone you know there's always someone to talk to because at the worst possible feeling some people truly will believe they don't and yeah. whether that's family whether that's within the workplace I think generally I think 
schools, for their pupils, for their employees, businesses, there is from a leadership perspective, whoever you are, whatever industry business you're in, I think all leaders now have such a responsibility to look after the mental health of their staff. Because if you look after your staff, you look after the business, don't you? And yeah, it's whatever spheres they mix, an individual will mix in. It would be really nice to know that they have someone to talk to. And like I said, I think mental health charities, whilst I think there's great a great deal of exposure, I think the designer handbag advert that you see on the tube in the tunnel on, when you're waiting for the train would be much better set if it was just all mental health. Oh, I love that. Yes, absolutely. Right. I'm, I'm fully behind you know? that. Um, you made a really good point there about um, about leaders and, and in the workplace having a bit of an obligation to, to their, their staff, uh, which I completely agree mm. with. Um, we've obviously focused a little bit on um, student welfare during this chat. But of course, the teachers um, yourselves have had uh, had a, an incredibly difficult year. I just wonder if that support has also been available to you. Um, we have had support. I think with not just the pandemic, but moving entire buildings from our old site that we were at for six and a half years to the new building. It's all singing or dancing. The, the building's incredible. Um, we've had a very busy year from a range of perspectives, not just with obviously predicting grades, uh, but getting the kids through remote teaching, looking after our own mental well-being. Um, I'm single and I don't have children. Those that are married with multiple children, gosh, I mean, my head of department, Dan spoke about it with his uh, kind of interview for Mental Health Awareness Week about kind of his kind of battle and his story and like having kids and everything as well and having dependence on you as a whole nother level to what people are uh, dealing with and need support for. I think in my school, it is good. I'm actually part of the wellbeing groups. There's a range of staff that meet once a, ter- once a half term, so six times a year, um, and do discuss kind of what the general feel of the school is and things are hopefully put in place to support staff. I think now that we are getting back to more normality, there will be a lot more done and in place in terms of just getting people back together, talking. I feel for teachers who started their job at a new school this year, because they've probably gone through a year, not just remote teaching two thirds of the year to kids they only met via a, a screen, but they're also now getting to know teachers 10 months into starting. Um, so it's quite, it's such a unique position. I think, yeah, I, I think it's a lot about just those kind of small stakes, daily check-ins as opposed to large scale kind of gestures whilst they're nice and they're great. Um, I think, yeah, the the authentic kind of trusting relationships that you build by kind of having regular checkups with your employees, with your staff, whoever you are, whatever business or industry you're in um, is key. And I think we've done pretty well with that. I'm really glad to hear that. I've actually got an article here that I'd love to get your opinion on again. It says here that 74% of educational employees would say that they don't have enough guidance at work on mental health issues. And 65% would not feel comfortable disclosing their own mental health issues to an employer. And also, I mean, I guess not unsurprisingly, 67% of educational professionals would describe themselves as stressed. I wonder, in your opinion, Jack, what could be done to offer more support for those um, in education? And... um, what systems or changes could be made that would be beneficial to both the um, the employee and the students? Um, I think there's often debate about kind of marking load and workload, but I think for the quality of education that you can provide your pupils, obviously things like kind of feedback and marking 
do provide a great deal of where they learn from mistakes and kind of how they then improve from that. So I think it's it's really about finding the balance between, and during my teacher training, there was a lot of kind of emphasis on work smart, not hard. And it's about the strategies, strategies that you use. So whether it's from a teaching and learning perspective, being able to provide whole class feedback, as opposed to always having to kind of mark two or three pages of a book. If English, math and science, they have two classes per year from year seven to say 11, plus maybe an A-level class, their marking workload is ridiculous and that's not even thinking about primary school teachers of which i know a few who have to be experts in all subjects not simply yeah. one subject yeah. so their market marking uh, load is huge I, I think it's about prioritizing what's going to be most beneficial for the pupils whether what you're doing is simply to tick an ofsted box um ofsted don't come hunting um i think it's uh making sure that yeah what you're doing is for the pupils I think a lot of what we do now, unfortunately at times, is to show what we're doing is correct as opposed to actually doing what we need to do correctly. Um, and I think, and I do understand why that is the case. I do understand why kind of senior leadership teams within schools are kind of very rigorous in the way they want the school to run. And that's great. And I think there is that need for kind of consistency and structure and kind of process but I think it's allowing teachers to be creative, to have some autonomy over what they're teaching. Because at the end of the day, teachers become teachers, especially in secondary, because you would like to think they love their subject. And if everything is all about kind of straight down the line, you need to be here at this point, you need to teach this because this will get the kids the best grades. Yes, but the balance between teaching kids to do well at the subject, but also develop a love and passion for it will make our job so much more rewarding so it's yeah managing and balancing workload prioritizing what is actually going to be most beneficial for the pupils but allowing teachers just to love their subjects i think it's very easy to see teachers and i know of teach uh, friends uh, teachers in other schools who are just really bogged down by kind of bit the shackles almost you want it you want yeah you want teachers just to love it and I think teachers that do love it it's very evident those that do yeah and I can see that from you Jack that you are most certainly one of those teachers um yeah it sounds like you are doing a fantastic job and um I wish that I had had more teachers like you if I'm honest um <laughs> that's very, that's very <laughs> so Jack just as we're uh as we're sort of slowly working towards a close I want to bring it back to you and your story it sounds like you are in a really good place with your own mental health um having spent that time to unpick a few things and um and work on yourself and your own sort of personal development and um I know that we briefly touched on it earlier but uh you are now in contact with your father which I know is a is a huge huge new um new part of your life and i'm i'm really excited to hear you talk to uh, to the listeners more about that amazing i mean so yeah we're going back to kind of october 2019 where i get a message on ancestry.co.uk uh from my half brother harry who originally from preston now living in uh california was moved over there as a software engineer working within kind of silicon valley uh, doing very well for himself and I get the message of hi Jack I think we're half brothers let's chat so very kind of just straight down the line this is it mind blown all right I'd obviously already through ancestry had connections with some like third or fourth cousins but whilst that can obviously be quite a distant relation I did choose a couple of those that didn't materialize into anything meaningful of 
hi, my name's Jack. I, I believe we're third or fourth cousins genetically. Um, you don't currently understand why this could be so important because I am from a donor perceived background. You may be from my father's uh, side. I'd love to chat more. Some replied, some didn't, but it didn't materialize into anything significant. Obviously with my brother, half brother, Harry contacting me, this becomes something a little bit more uh, kind of something we can uh, follow and pursue. And he says, look, I'm going to get right to the chase. Um, I'm donor conceived, are you? And I said, yes. So immediately we established, we think we, we share the same biological father. Um, and then it led to, and I mentioned earlier about the regulations kind of August, 1991, I believe. Harry was actually born before that. So when I went to the HFEA, so the Human Fertility and Embryology Authority, and when I was 23, 24 and said, I want to find out who my father is, am I allowed to? They said, no, but here's the non-identifiable information. I was also told I have two donor conceived siblings, a girl born in 92 and a brother born in 93. Harry was born in 91. So he's not one of these two. So I've actually got two other donor conceived siblings that I've never met. Um, Harry's the only one that I know of right now. From the non-identifiable information that I was legally able to obtain and through Harry's slightly greater desire than mine to find out who his father was. Grew up with his mum and his two brothers. So he was half a half brother to his two brothers. Um, he always felt a little bit different. He felt like there was something a little bit missing. He was kind of a different, he had different inclinations to his brother. He was very scientific, very methodical. Uh, I studied a scientific degree. I did biology A-level. Harry did kind of software engineering, very kind of scientifically inclined. Um, he just felt different. And then this obviously started to put together a puzzle for Harry that this actually could be something worth pursuing, obviously. Um, so Harry signed up to two other genealogy sites, 23andMe and MyHeritage. Through that, he created a range of different connections, some fairly extensive family trees he made. And we found out that a mutual third cousin of ours Therefore, we suppose on our uh, father's side, there was a specific surname that kept popping up and we were like this, I reckon this is his mum's maiden name or something along those lines. And basically we pieced it together. Harry matched our half sister. So our biological father's uh, legitimate daughter of which is the eldest of four with his wife. Um, so we found out there and I remember Harry calling me from America saying, I think I've worked it out. And this is actually the day before the Rugby World Cup final where England lost to South Africa. Um, and my family, South Africans, had a real conflict going on. <laughs> and mine and, are Welsh uh, and we, we love that. Uh, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> and um, I remember it was the night before the Rugby World Cup final and Harry called me and said, I think I've worked it out. And he sent me all the information, all the screenshots of like kind of Facebook profiles, his old, eldest daughter's our half sister. And we pieced it together. So on the 6th of December, Harry and I kind of compiled an email together that Harry sent on both of our behalves. And we got a response either that day or the next day, which was one of the most kind of emotionally fulfilling moments of my life in terms of to get that email back where not only was he excited as we as excited as we were to find out about us, but also so welcoming and accepting. He had always told his kids and his wife that he donated sperm one day. So they always knew someone could come forward. It was never hidden because that's a real bombshell to have to tell your family, oh, by the way, I've got four other kids. And we're lucky in that in England, there's a lot more strict regulation. Um, in America, there are thousands of cases where people have upwards of 50 siblings. So a woman called Louise McLaughlin, who runs her own podcast called um, You Look Like Me, 
Um, she is Donor Conceived herself. And the five episodes of the podcast kind of start to piece together her story, but also interview a range of other people. One of which was a boy, I believe he lived in Cleveland. I'm not sure. But um, he found out at the age of 18, he had 200 siblings, of which two or three of them were in younger or older years at the same school that he went to. Not only does that kind of generate or bring rise to some serious issues should they meet have an attraction you know there's real kind of donor conceived issues there especially with that amount we're lucky that that's not the case here but in america there are a lot of cases where people have quite literally grown up on the same street as their half sibling and not known about it um and louise's podcast is amazing as well so i'm happy to plug that on here if that's okay absolutely um, yeah I'm sure louise will be very happy to uh, hear that i'll let her know afterwards um but um yeah so we found out about this. We got the most incredible email back. And even their family had this in-joke together that if they went to a country, say like Italy or Spain, we're all quite like dark eyebrows, dark hair, dark eyes, would see a guy who looked a little bit like their dad. They'd be like, dad, do you reckon, do you reckon that's one of them? Um, and to just have such an open conversation within their family that their dad once donated sperm, again, is an amazing thing. So, and actually we're all equally lucky at the time, my eldest sister, uh, who Harry actually kind of kind of matched on this genealogy site as well as a half sibling, was living in London studying. So I got to meet her for a coffee for the first time. And we just couldn't kind of stop like looking at each other and like, I can't believe how much you look like my dad. And that conversation has progressed from kind of our dad to I I, I call him by his name, but to like people I do refer to him as my dad. Um, but now they kind of refer to him when I'm speaking to them as, oh yeah, dad mentioned the other day that you had a really nice chat on the phone. It's such a much more kind of wholesome, kind of connected kind of conversation. It's so lovely. Um, my dad flew over on the weekend, start of March last year. So it was quite literally just before lockdown. So he got here the week before lockdown. Uh, my other sister is currently studying medicine in Manchester. I've then got a 19 year old brother who's about to start university uh, in Durham next year. And then another brother who's uh, 13, 14 years old. So we all play rugby as well, which is amazing. I'd love to be in a sevens tournament one day. Um, <laughs> and my sister from who's studying in Manchester came down. My other sister who was living in London was already here. And I met my dad for the first time, the second eldest daughter. So my half sister uh, for the first time and my oldest sister, uh, that was the second or third time we'd met. And she's now again in London. We get on so well. And from also being in a Facebook group called We Are Donor Conceived, which is a support group for people who are donor conceived. Um, it's quite hard to read some of those stories. And the same way I feel for people at my school who have suffered from bereavement, I really do consider myself and Harry so fortunate that our dad was so welcoming, so loving, so open and accepting with his family of what he did once in his life and the kind of moral ethical obligations that he might have one day as a not as a father because I don't think it's that way but he has a lot of people have sadly been met with such rejection and I read that on this Facebook group and I just feel for them and Louise explores a lot of that as well within her um, you look like me podcast and it's only now and I think Louise is really a trailblazer in terms of the only podcast I know of that's ever kind of explored it or discussed it. And I think now that kind of from 28, from 2000, when the laws changed to donors being legally kind of now non-anonymous, if you will, that's not a word, but not, not being anonymous. Um, 
once those children have started to turn 18 in 2018, I think it's now starting to come out more that there are lots of children who have been in the dark for 18 years, have been told legally they are now allowed to find out who their kind of donor parents are. And that now that conversation is starting to happen. And I think for what Louise has done with her podcast, she's hopefully just kind of not broken the back of it, but really just started to dig into it a little bit more. And similarly with any mental health uh, battles that people feel there's a place where they can go. Um, there are more people that are starting to talk about being donor conceived, the battles that that comes with, the obligations that comes with from the parents perhaps. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I'm so fortunate to be able to say that my story is successful and I hope to will continue to be successful and that my relationship with my father and my siblings of having grown up with as an only child to now having five siblings is incredible. It's such a fantastic story, Jack. It's such a successful one. I'm so pleased for you that it worked out so well. You know, you said earlier that uh, it doesn't always work out so uh, so well for, for others. So I'm just really pleased for you that you, you have such a successful outcome and that you've established that relationship and you've got uh, so many new additions to your family. Um, it's just so, so great to hear. Um, thank you so much for this session and for giving me your time and your openness and your honesty and for sort of sharing your passion uh, for education and, and telling me about all the wonderful things that you've been doing in school and for, you know, really um, raising that, that awareness of mental health within, within education. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I could talk to you for hours. Um, but just thank you. Thank you again for, for giving me your time and, uh, and for sharing your story. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. Well, there we have it. That is episode two of Men on Mental Health. Thank you so much to Jack for sharing his story. And thank you so much to you for listening. Don't forget, you can also go back and listen to the first episode of Men on Mental Health. And there will also be another episode very, very soon. So keep an eye out for that please subscribe or leave a review and uh, help share this message far and wide. I look forward to uh, you tuning in again very, very soon. Until next time.